0: A quick note, this is a 10-part chronological docu-series. We recommend starting at Chapter 1. And for the best immersive listening experience, headphones are suggested. So far in this series, you've heard how American servicemen in Vietnam were shot down, captured, and tortured, enduring near-death conditions for as many as eight long years. You've heard from a son, describing what his family went through his father was in captivity. You've heard what was going on in Johnson and Nixon's Oval Offices during some of the most difficult periods of the war and the POW crisis. You've heard of the plight of Everett Alvarez and Red McDaniel, who currently in our tale are still sitting in North Vietnamese prison camps, wondering when or if they will ever get to go home. But now, a story you haven't heard. This is a story of those who were at home, Those whose tragic and impossible circumstances created an incredible movement. Those who refused to sit and wait. And those whose story remains more important than ever to tell. This is a story about the women who helped to change everything. In 1967, Wives of POW and MIA servicemen banded together to form the League of Wives. Originally, it was a support group for women in similar situations. Soon, it would grow into a serious organization that wrote coded letters, met with the North Vietnamese, and conferenced with Nixon himself. The League of Wives became an instrumental part in raising awareness of the POW issue and putting political pressure where it needed to be to bring these men home. The ripples of it still influence the way the military, the veteran community, and the American government interact with each other today. In the next two episodes, you will hear from some of these women. Part one will focus on receiving the news and adapting to their new lives as single heads of households. Part two will focus on the league formation and the action they ultimately took. Our servicemen were of course heroes, enduring horrific captivity and not giving away any critical information to the North Vietnamese. But these women were heroes too. The heroes who set their husbands free. From the Richard Nixon Presidential Library, this is Captured, Shot Down in Vietnam. First, let's meet Heath Hardage Lee. Heath is a leading women's history expert and author of the book, The League of Wives, the untold story of the women who took on the U.S. government to bring their husbands home.
1: The League of Wives specifically intrigued me because I had always had a personal interest in the Vietnam War, which was really not being taught in the schools when I was coming through. I'm 53, and you know, at the time I was coming through school, that was kind of like a war that no one wanted to talk about. So I was always intrigued because people didn't want me to know about it. Of course, that made me want to know about it.
0: To understand all they had to overcome, we have to back up and give some context about the evolution of women's expected societal roles and what the situation was like in the 1960s. Here's Heath summing up a quick 250 years of women's history.
1: Why don't we start with like Republican motherhood? When the Republic is young, women are patriotic nurturers of the young country and our ideals. In the Revolutionary times, women were actually, I think, in a better position than later because we needed everybody to fight for this country to establish it. But that kind of authority and respect diminishes. We get to Victorian times, the 19th century, the cult of true womanhood, where it's all about domestic purity, piety, submissiveness to to men. Women's brains being, being considered so small that they just can't do anything but, but stay at home and tend the heart. Then you jump, of course, to women's suffrage, and you know that we finally get the vote. And this is you know, a huge deal. So that finally empowers women to, to begin to get some rights skipping along to World War II Rosie the Riveter Ooh. All the day long, where the rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory. Rosie, the riveter keeps the shop. Women are drafted into the factories, and they are taking over all these jobs that men were doing before. And so, there's a real empowerment there. But then the men come back from the war, and you are trading the blowtorch for the vacuum cleaner. So you're really, you're going two steps forward often and then maybe three steps back. The 50s was this golden time for the military after the Korean War where there wasn't like a whole lot going on. So everybody got to stay home, drink, have ice sculptures and shrimp cocktail and like go to dances at the officer's club. (laughs) A lot of people said that was the golden age. That was when you wanted to be in the military. And people had gotten maybe a little complacent. You know, they weren't actively deploying people. But then this war comes up, this horrible war that we don't understand. And we don't understand the enemy. Just so much disillusionment. So it's a very different war than your parents' were or your grandparents' were, But they are still traditional housewives. Really, they have been trained by the military, all the branches, to be quiet, to stay quiet, to not speak out, to look decorative, to make jello molds, etc., and, and be a credit to their husbands, but not be giving opinions. If you did that, that could really hurt your husband's career.
0: Meet Ann Pat Mearns. I'm 90 years old two years into the Vietnam War, she was a mother of two little girls and the wife of Air Force Major Art Mearns. She was the consummate military housewife, just like Heath described.
2: I was a young lady when I met my husband. Art's my husband. I was about 25 years old. Art went as ROTC and went into the Air Force, and uh, he really enjoyed flying. And so he became a fighter pilot. When I met him, he had spent a tour in Korea. He walked in the door, we looked at each other, and there was something happened. And uh, that was it. Never believed in love at first sight at all. (laughs) There was something, you know, it just, we clicked. We liked the same things, and we talked, and it was just sort of magic. It was all very special. We were married about a year later, had two children, Missy and Francis. These days you don't believe in magic, but there it was. We were living at this time at the Yokota Air Force Base in Japan. We're having a wonderful life. Art was doing the job that he loved. He was a lieutenant. Then he became a captain. We were all living in Japan when the Vietnam War started. Every once in a while, they would call up some of the troops, the various different Air Force squadrons to fulfill some duties that they had. He was stationed at that particular time in Thailand, and he was a major at that time.
0: Now, meet Andrea Rander. During the same time period, she was the wife of Army Specialist First Class Don Rander.
3: I was approximately 27 years old, and the war had started many years before that. A war that I was really totally unaware of. It meant nothing to me at the time. Um, I had have- At that point, was a single mom with one child. And my dear husband, Don Rander, asked me to marry him. I had known him for many years before, when we were children, in our old neighborhood of New York. And the chance meeting we had in in a courtroom, he getting a divorce and me at the same time getting a divorce we were uh, able to to meet again. Uh, He was stationed in Baltimore, Maryland. So we established a homestead there with really very good friends who played an important role in my life during Don's captivity in Vietnam
1: where we find ourselves is sort of betwixt and between the 1950s and the 60s, kind of on the cusp of all kinds of revolution.
2: I was told as a young woman, you know, all you could ever be is a is a housewife or a secretary or a nurse or a teacher. Well, my sister was a teacher
1: and I became a nurse. That, that was the big thing The 60s is going to be a huge amount of change in so many areas, and particularly in women's roles, and they find out they have to throw the traditional playbook out and write their own rules.
0: But writing your own rules as a military wife was hard, when there was a literal manual about how to act.
1: One of the first artifacts I got into my hands was the Navy wife from the 60s. It's really, it's a government propaganda book, a military propaganda book. It's a protocol guide that details how you are supposed to look, how you are supposed to decorate, um, what you are allowed to wear and pack. It was not only specific, it was pretty like dire warnings of your role as a wife is to support, to be quiet, to stay in the background. Tend the children look pretty and just shut up and you would basically be there with your bouffant hairdo and a bow in your hair and a martini ready for your husband when he came home from flying his plane you were to behave yourself and and not upset him because if you did upset him there might be an accident and a direct quit the blood of his colleagues would also be on your hands Oh my God, that part, I was either alternatively really angry reading this or like hysterically laughing at some of this stuff. Of course, my favorite was like, what lingerie to pack for your honeymoon? Why is this in a, in a military protocol guide? I mean, the w- really scary part though was that former military wives that wrote all these books said so they're like brainwashing the younger ones. But I think a lot of these people were true believers until um, their husbands were shot down or went missing. These wives ditch that whole protocol in pretty short order. Once you get into the practicalities of your husband is shot down and there is nothing in the index of that book, believe me, I checked even about prisoners of war. So they realize how completely worthless this is when you get in trouble and there's no reference guide for it.
0: Andrea recalls when her husband Don first told her he was going to Vietnam in the Army.
3: Donald decided that he wanted to volunteer because things were really, really starting to um, take a different effect uh, with the country. And being Donald, he knew that this was part of his duty. I was a little disillusioned by the fact that he wanted to leave his family, but he convinced me that he felt the necessity to go and
1: fulfill this duty as a military man. I think the men are very matter of fact. This was their mission. They love their country and they were gonna do what they needed to do. And this is the mission. And he said he, that's what he
3: signed up for and this is what he planned to do. So there there was a little discussion. All I could think about was, well, I've got these two children and I've got a full-time job and you you thought it was okay for me to go to work when we moved to the area and here I am working and you're leaving me with the two little children. And he said, you know, you'll be fine. You can handle it. I thought, yeah, okay. If you think so, then I will. So uh, much to my dismay, he decided that he would volunteer and uh, get an assignment in uh, Vietnam.
0: Pat also remembers her husband Art being sure of his abilities and therefore inspiring her with the same confidence.
2: I had a lot of confidence in his, his skill and technique, how he behaved, his confidence in himself. Of course, the war came along and we started hearing people being shot down. And then we heard the uh, horrendous Hanoi march. And that was just before Art was shot down. That was in June and he was shot down November 11th.
0: Art was always off flying different missions and assignments. It was his job. And for many years, it felt routine. For a while, the situation in Vietnam felt no different. While deployed, Art and Pat would write each other. He would check up on his daughters, ask about the house and other domestic issues. The couple maintained whatever normalcy they could, despite the unspoken dangers of Art's job. In late 1966, Art had flown almost 100 missions over North Vietnam and was only about a week from his duty ending and him returning home. Pat and the girls were anxiously awaiting his arrival. Art had been reassigned back to the US and they were set to leave Japan and start life again on the safety of American soil. Only one more week. But then...
1: Ugh, that horrible scene. It's really very cinematic. I think we've, we've all probably seen it in movies. Well, it was November 11th, 1966. And it was early afternoon. They will come in in a black car usually, some kind of black sedan. They will drive up to the driveway and everybody freaks out when they see a black car pulling up. This is a really bad sign. That is how you know something is really wrong. And the doorbell rang
2: and there was two Air Force officers at the front door. As an Air Force wife, whose husband flew, the doorbell ringing always brought a little qualm to you.
3: I could see a green uniform, or two green uniforms, and I could
1: see the shoulder badges. And they will knock on the door, come in the house, ask to, you know, speak to the wife.
3: And the first thing that went through my mind was, oh, well, they're coming to give me good news. Maybe Donald is going to be coming home earlier than suspected.
1: That quickly changed. At this point in the Vietnam era, if this is a pilot we're talking about, like, ma'am, I'm so sorry to inform you. They told me that Art had been lost, had been shot down over North Vietnam.
3: He had been declared missing in action, and, and we. Uh, The U.S. Army uh, Defense Department is doing everything possible to
1: see if we can't locate him. Your husband is missing in action. And they didn't know whether he was alive or dead. We don't know where he is. Ma'am, we've told you absolutely everything we know. We will keep you informed. It was agony.
2: The agony of not knowing.
0: At that time you must have had hope that he was alive. Of course. And and what did they tell you in terms of maintaining that hope?
2: His parachute opened. He was very close to being to the Bay of Tonkin, that he would be picked up after being shot
0: down. And later on, I'm sure you heard more specifics about what exactly did happen. Do you want to share those with us?
2: No, not really, Uh, other than just that his airplane fell apart, and he was alive in the parachute, according to some of the fellows that were in the flight with him. Once you're in that situation, you're treated differently. Not a widow, or not a wife. What are you?
0: Pat wasn't the wife of a POW. She was the wife of an MIA serviceman, missing in action, the kind of pain she and her daughters felt was different. They didn't have someone to mourn, nor did they have someone in a prison camp to pray for. Throughout this time, I'm sure some of your fellow wives were hearing that their husbands were in fact alive and seeing there they are in a, in a prison camp. When you would hear of that news, how did it make you feel?
2: Oh, joyous for them because they knew for sure, because it's agonizing not to know whether a man is alive or dead, whether your, 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 your whole life is, is gone into oblivion with the loss of this person.
0: Very quickly, these consummate 50s housewives went from jello molds and shrimp cocktails to taking care of a household all on their own. But their unique circumstances and the way society dealt with those circumstances did not make that easy
1: another very frustrating thing about all these varied stories about not being able to cash a check at the PX horrible story, but great illustration is Jane Denton, Jeremiah Denton, the POW's wife who went to the PX at um, the Naval base at Oceana in Virginia beach and could not cash a check because she could not tell the cashier her husband's address because he was in the Hanoi Hilton. And she's like, I can't tell them where he is because I'm supposed to keep quiet and I have no idea where that is, but they don't believe me. And so they would not cash the check. And it was just horrible. This was kind of a daily occurrence. So it was extremely difficult to get that sorted out. If you're in this MIA status particularly, it's a complete nightmare.
0: Meanwhile, on the East Coast... Andrea was struggling with isolation, not hearing anything more about her husband, Donald. Waiting, waiting, and waiting.
3: Trying to find out where my husband is, and I'm worried about my children, and what do I do? I felt so alone in this little cocoon where there were no other wives in the area. So I really did not have the communications that were starting to build with a lot of wives who were finally getting together in order to find out more information about their husbands. I I had no idea. Other wives were having difficulties just as I was and trying to adjust about getting bad news about their husbands. The time elapsed, I hear nothing. I wait and I wait, but I continue to work um, I was working full-time, as a matter of fact. Donald was, uh, I didn't know where he was at the moment, but the news would change. Nobody worry about me because I'm fine. I can do this. I can take care of myself until Don comes back from Vietnam, which is going to be really in a short while because he's strong. I know if if he's missing, they'll find him, and then they'll send him home to me. And that was my whole theory And my whole feeling during the space of time that he was missing. So I'm at work trying to continue on, waiting and waiting. And if I thought that was going to be a wait, I had a lot of reckoning to do.
0: As if the news of their husbands being missing or captured wasn't enough... Many of the women were made to feel very isolated. They were discouraged by the U.S. government from talking publicly about their situations.
1: The keep quiet policy, which to briefly explain that, is, is a policy that had been in place before the Johnson regime really under Kennedy um, and even before then where if your husband was shot down or missing, you as the wife and family were told to keep quiet and not say anything about it because it could jeopardize their chances to negotiate for them or to to bring them home or they could be harmed in some way. Okay, that's impossible. At first they were scared to do anything, but after months and in some cases a couple years of that, they finally were like, we have to talk to someone within their communities the first line of support was the other military wives in that same situation under Sybil Stockdale. Those wives come together more for like a support group. But after a couple years, they realize they have to do something.
0: The League provided a space for women to build identities that were not centered on their wifehood. The League contained POW, MIA, and KIA wives alike together representing one of the toughest, most determined, and politically influential group of women in American history, relentlessly lobbying Washington, whose work would help transform what it meant to be a modern wife and mother in our country. And Andrea would soon have something more clear to lobby for.
3: A couple of months after I had received the word that he was uh, missing in action... I get the call from the Defense Department and the, the U.S. Army that Donald had been captured. He was in captivity. And the reason how they found out was one of the people who was with Don found a way to get away, I, I guess you'd say. The military discovered him, and he was able to declare the people who were killed in the house where Don lived and that Don had been captured. And that's how I got the news, not knowing what I was gonna go to for the rest of the time. I thought, well, now they know that he's in captivity, time will tell and he will be released. And
2: that was not the case. As a young woman I, I wasn't particularly interested in politics per se. I I really got interested in politics when I when I decided I would try to get to the representatives that weren't saying very much about the Vietnam War or anything.
0: Pat, despite not knowing her husband art status, would become one of the league's most active members. Paired up with dozens of other wives who did know their men were alive and who would likely see them one day stepping off an airplane.
2: Family is very important, and you know, family keeps hope up that they may be still alive.
0: What did you think the chances were of you finding him at the time? Like, how much hope did you really have?
2: All the hope in the world. All the hope in the world.
0: This is the end of the League of Wives, part one. Right now in our story, Pat's husband, Art, is still M.I.A. Andrea's husband, Don, has been revealed to be a prisoner of war. In part two, Pat and Andrea's stories will continue. Plus, you'll learn a little more about Everett and Red's home lives and hear a bit from Red's wife, Dorothy, who was with him through thick and thin then and still with him now. And we'll dive into exactly how the League was officially formed and how these women were able to accomplish so very much on their beloved men's behalf. Captured, Shot Down in Vietnam is a docu-series from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Foundation. Produced by the team at Foundwave and respectfully created in honor of Ross Perot Sr. If you're interested in learning more about Vietnam POWs, you can visit the exhibition captured at the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California. Original music compositions, Foley effects and mastering from Jonathan Rock. Produced and edited by Steph Weaver-Weinberg. Research, background and history from Jason Schwartz. Executive production from Joe Lopez and the team at the Richard Nixon Foundation and Kaylee Mason from Perot Family Collections. Co-executive production, interviewing, and hosting from me, Tyler Russell McCusker. Find future episodes of this show and bonus content, including archival photos and audio, at capturedpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our production, please consider leaving a review and clicking follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.